we have been taking a look at the earthly life and ministry of Jesus. And his life, like ours, is not made up of a series of events and happenings, but that each event or happening is cumulative. It tells us more about who he is and who his disciples are. And so this particular passage is no different. It will be impacted by what we've seen previously. And so on in Matthew chapter 20, starting with verse 17, for the third recorded time, Jesus is going to discuss with his disciples his death and his resurrection. Generally speaking, every time he brings it up, either the disciples try to talk him out of it or they don't quite catch the meaning. And so, as Jesus had previously on his way to see and to ultimately resurrect Lazarus, his disciples were concerned of him going because Bethany is close to Jerusalem and in Judea and they were afraid that they would still try to stone him. Well now he's on his way to Jerusalem because Passover is close and as all males are required to, if at all possible, go to Jerusalem at Passover, Jesus is doing so. But he's been taking trip and he is getting close to the town of Jericho. And we'll talk about the town of Jericho later uh, at another time. And so Jesus is heading south uh, toward Jerusalem. And verse 17 says, As Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside by themselves and on the way he said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and crucify him. And on the third day he will be raised up. So Jesus gives them a pretty full description of what's going to happen that he's going to be delivered up, which means somebody's going to see that he falls into the hand of the Pharisees and the scribes, that they will condemn him to death, but that, as everyone knows, they don't have the power to do that, and so they're going to hand him over to the Gentiles to take care of it, and the Gentiles will mock him and scourge him and crucify him. But he's saying, don't lose hope, because on the third day I will rise again. Now you would think that since this is now the third time he's brought this up, at least recorded, he may have discussed it more, you would think the disciples, after having experienced him for that long thing, well, what is it that you want us to do? What is it that we can do in this situation. So they you know, they might say, well, I know this is what you're saying is going to happen, 
Is it something we can do to prevent it? Or is it something we can do while it's happening to you to make it better for you? But there's no word of that. It just, he tells them. And so as a result, what follows up becomes even more stark. And so in verse 20 it says, Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. Now, I guess the one positive that I can say is that at least here there's a certain amount of faith. Because they're saying, well, you've told us that your 12 disciples are going to sit on thrones with you and you're going, and they're going to judge the twelve tribes. And so, apparently, there's at least this faith that this is going to happen. So, I don't want to be always down, but so that's a positive. The interesting thing is that the mother of the sons of Zebedee are probably Mary's. So they're, if you will, half cousins of Jesus. And so the mother of the sons of Zebedee, the, the sons of thunder, came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. And he said to her, what do you wish? She said to him, command that in your kingdom these two sons of mine may sit one on your right hand and one on your left. And so again, here's at least a statement of faith saying, okay, my kids are going to judge the twelve tribes, but I want preferment. I want one of them, as you're sitting on your throne, to sit on your right hand and one on your left. I'll let you choose which one. She didn't say, I want James to sit on the right and John to sit on the left or vice versa. Jesus says, I want my two boys to be in places of authority and closeness. Because when somebody is sitting on the right hand and or the left hand of a powerful person, they have influence, they themselves have power, and people want to be in a position of power. So she makes the request that she not only wants them to judge the 12 tribes, she wants them to be on the right and left hand. So she wants them to have influence in Jesus' kingdom. And after all, maybe Jesus should grant it because we're family. But Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? So Jesus says, You really don't understand what it is you're asking. Because I've told you I'm about to be crucified. I told you I'm about to be mocked. I told you all of these things. Are you going to be able to, to drink those types of events? And they, like most of us who are imaginatively probable, we are able. So no longer is mom talking for them. They're speaking on the behalf. Now, in the other Gospels, the mother is left out. It's not a matter of, oh, gee, uh, one Gospel has it wrong or different. 
when the person who is the one making the statement, whether it's in person or by a, an embassy, an embassy, it's that person who is being spoken of. So whether the other gospel said, well, this is what took place, it's kind of, well, mom asked, the boys concur. Yeah, we want this, we want, we want to do this. Now what's interesting here is Jesus asked them a question, are they able to drink it? And they say, yes, they are. And he said to them, my cup you shall drink. Now, James will be one of the first, well, he'll be the first apostolic martyr. He will not be long on the earth after Jesus' resurrection. He will be martyred for his belief. John, on the other hand, will live a long life, but it will not be an easy life. He will be mocked, he will be ridiculed, he will even be placed in exile. And so it's not like either one has a beautiful life ahead. Jesus says, yep, you're right, you're going to drink, but to sit on my right and on my left, this is not mine to give. Jesus still acknowledges that he is under authority. But it is for those whom it has been prepared by my Father. God has determined in his ultimate wisdom who will sit on the right and who will sit on the left. And it's prepared for them. Now, you know what the reaction of the rest of the group is going to be, as you would have the same re reaction. And hearing this, the ten became indignant with the two brothers. You went behind our backs, and you tried to become better than us. How dare you do that? How dare you want to have the special preferment of being on Jesus' right and on his left? So again, it shows, a, if you will, a bit of the sense that they have faith, because if it's not happening... Who cares? But they're indignant that of the hubris that these two boys have to ask for this preferment. But Jesus called them to himself and said, so Jesus is very aware that there is antagonism in his group. 2,000 years later, there is still the same old problem. When churches don't have people who are more concerned about the gospel than their position, there happens to be antagonism. Well, the pastor didn't recognize me. Or no one noticed I was there. Or, you know, I didn't get my pen for three weeks of uninterrupted attendance. It's and and pastors are told and saying, well, you've got to recognize people and you've got to ask people and you got to and it's it's all about recognition. And the sad thing about Baptist churches, 
is we've, we've started more new churches because of a church split than intention. Well, I can't believe that so-and-so did such and such and I'm not going there so that we start a new church. Wouldn't it be great if we actually started new churches as we're trying to advance the kingdom? And so Jesus knows of the controversy. He goes, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great men exercised authority over them. He's saying, wait a minute, guys. This is the way the world works. The way the world works is you want power. You want to be able to tell people what to do. And you're never satisfied with a little power. You always want more and more. And people love to tell people what to do. All you got to do is go to the grocery store. They got little things on the aisles telling you which way to go. But there's nobody in this the store. Almost said something. But they're still, they love to tell you how to do things. Every once in a while, my rebellious side gets out and I'm going, why do I want to go that way to go around and go this way? And what I want is like five feet from this thing. So I just go get it. Forcing nobody's told me, oh, you're going the wrong way. But we love to tell people what to do. Even our quote-unquote public servants like to lord it over everyone. My wife was very involved in PTA throughout our children's schooling. And at their elementary school, and I'm trying to be, I'm, the, the names will be unnamed to protect the guilty. Um, so she was at doing PTA things and invited the parents uh, to do the PTA thing. And I don't know whether it was to invite more people. I don't, but they had punch and cookies and finger food and all these things. And they had invited not only the parents, but the school board people. And this one particular school board person, no one had said, well, you go first. Because you're a school board person. See, I actually believe that what we talked about is public service. But she didn't look at it that way. And she was incensed that she wasn't invited to go first. Because after all, she was a school board person. But that's the way the world works. I have this position, therefore you should honor me. I have this position, I can tell you what to do. And if I don't like you, I'll spend more money on a different school than your school. So, be in line. Jesus says, that is not the way that my kingdom is going to work. And so he's going to give them some advice. And in giving them advice, he's giving us advice. And that's the title of my sermon, and so I'll look at it to make sure I get it right. How to really be promoted in the kingdom of God. Now let's face it, we all want promotions. We all want to be in positions of authority and recognition. When you go to work, and you start in the mail room, assuming you started in the mail room, you're not satisfied ending up in the mailroom. 
You can't wait to get a promotion that you do your job so well that nobody, everybody gets the right mail in the right spot at the right time, and they go, hey, this per- so let's give them a promotion. And so they make you whatever's next, and then whatever's next. And you even hear in some instances that that person becomes president of the company. I think that worked with UPS or something. They started out as a driver and ended up running the whole show. But that's how it works. We look to be promoted, and the way you look to be promoted is you work hard, you stay out of trouble, and you do whatever, and you try to be noticed. And in reality, as we will see, it is not necessarily what you know, but who you know. And there have been a lot of people who have gotten promotions. You look and say, they haven't been here that long. They're not that impressive. They know something. Or they went to the right school with the right people at the right school. But Jesus says, that's now how it's going to work. So let me give you a recommendation how to get promoted in the kingdom of God. And it's going to take you aback because it's not the way the world works. It's not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you. Okay. You want to be great. You want to be awesome. You, you ultimately want to sit on my right hand or on my left hand. You, you want to be significant in the kingdom of God. Here's how you do it. You shall be, whoever wants to be great among you shall be your. He says, not who you know, not what you know, not how hard you work. It's not how effective you are, but that you serve. So I'm going to give you kind of an example. I am not very good with construction. One of the reasons I'm a lawyer. I always assumed that when you built things, it had to be kind of exact. Until I started doing things around here and discovered while the the uh, code says it's supposed to be every 16 inches, it ain't. Fences are supposed to be exact, and they ain't. I... Uh, we, we, many decades ago, we bought a house. And it was a brand new house in the sense of no one else had ever lived there before. It was brand new. And so we wanted a patio. We were one of the fu- last people to put a patio on. And my uh, stepfather-in-law happened to be working in cement. He drove a truck. So he was nice enough to do that. And as the cement truck came, and we lived in Riverside where it was hot like today, and we poured the cement, and we he laid it, and he did it, and we put salt stuff in so we wouldn't slip. It was such a good job that, that the neighbors started coming and looking because we were actually doing it right. Not because I knew what I was doing. He knew what he was doing. And our neighbors had done such a lousy job that one of them, while they were trying to scrape the the cement, so that it would be even, it hardened. And so all they had was scrapes. It wasn't even even. And they're looking going, oh, that's how you do it. And I'm going, yeah, that's how, that's how you do it. And then we put the lattice work up. Now you see, I thought a hammer was a hammer. 
<laughs> no. I had this hammer, and I'm up there, and we're putting in the last word, and I'm banging, I'm banging, I'm banging. And I look over at him, and he takes this hammer and goes, bam, 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 bam. And I'm going, what kind of hammer you got? He always was like a 16-ounce, whatever it was. And I'm going, not what this is. So when I bought a hammer, because I didn't know the difference. So what I'm saying is, when you become a servant, you don't necessarily need to know anything. Somebody's building a house, you don't have to know how to build a house. You say, here's a board. You nail it, because I don't know what I'm doing. But you don't have to keep coming up and down the ladder, because I'll serve you. You need some water? I'll give you some water. I will serve you, even though I don't know how to build a house. But all too often in church, people go, well, I don't know how to do X. And so I'll still sit in the pew. No, serve somebody. Hand them some water. Hand them, in this example, a board. Do something that makes their job easier, and you serve. And even by not knowing anything, by becoming a servant, guess what? In Jesus' kingdom, you just got promoted. Now, I know. You all say, oh, it's just great enough to be in it. I'm just going to be satisfied with that. Be, you can finish the rest of it. You're not satisfied with what's on the earth. You always want bigger, better, greater, more money, more time, more whatever, which won't last forever. And now you're going to be satisfied with just, well, whatever happens, happens. No, you need to be understanding that you should work to get a promotion in the kingdom of God. So, you shall be a servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you, okay, you, you, you want to sit on my right hand, you want to sit on my left, you want to have some significance in the kingdom, you want to be first, shall be your not even just a servant. You see a servant goes, you know, I'm done. The heat of the day, I gave you a bunch of boards and some water, I'm out. A slave doesn't get to do that. A slave is permanently bonded to the master. And whatever the master says, that's what you do. Whether it's a good idea or not. And he's saying, you, you, you really want to get promoted? And become a slave. And then he's going to give an example. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. Jesus' favorite expression of himself is to call himself the Son of Man. Now there will be some people say, well that's because he's trying to tell everybody he's also human as well as God. No, he's telling everybody he's God. Because in Daniel, it talks about the Son of Man. And that person receives honor and glory at the throne of God. So he goes, if I, the Son of Man, if I, the Son of the living God, did not come here for you all to wait on me, did not come here for you to serve me, but for me to serve 
you. But not only that, he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He gave his life in exchange for the indebtedness that we have that we might be free. You want to be promoted in the kingdom of God? Serve. Be a slave. Give your life for His kingdom. It's not about everybody acknowledging, aren't you wonderful? Oh, Pastor, tell us what to do. You have such authority. Be here to be a servant of everyone, to be a slave of everyone, and to say, at the end of my life and the end of your life, it's not what you gained, but what you gave. That you gave your life. Not as a ransom, because Jesus already did that. But gave your life so that Jesus might be honored and glorified. That people might understand that you are his disciple, and that you take his teaching seriously, and that you want to progress in the kingdom, not as the world does, as Jesus taught us. And Jesus not only taught us by word, he showed us by his The thing that we Christians sometimes is so mind-blowing that we think about it is that the God of the universe, the God who said, let there be light, the God who makes everything and is powerful and is entitled to honor and glory and power and dominion, that God sent his son because he loved you and me. To serve you and me. To die for you. If God can do that, who are we to do any less? And all God's people.